1: For a lot of these people, there was simply no hope whatever in England and in America, daunting as it was, scary as it was, they believed that there would be a small amount of hope, at least.
2: That was James Evans talking to us about English migration to the Americas in the 17th century. For today's episode, we've been joined by the historian and TV producer James Evans, who is the author of a new book entitled Emigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World. The book seeks to explain why several hundred thousand people departed England for the Americas in the 17th century and explores the challenges they faced on their long journeys and in their new home. James spoke to our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman.
3: your book, um, it states that 400,000 people, that's sort of one in 10 English men and women, um, emigrated to the Americas in the 17th century. Um, What what caused this huge number of people to leave the country?
1: Well, I mean, it's a truly astonishing number, first of all. I mean, it was completely unprecedented in the annals of migration. I mean, at that stage, nothing like it had ever been seen before. Um, And as I say, 400,000 people. It's probably about half of those people who went to the colonies in the Caribbean, um, but the other half all went to North America, to colonies in North America. It was, you know, an astonishing outpouring, completely unprecedented, as I say. Um, the, the idea, the, you know, the question about what caused it is the, the, the fundamental thing that my book's about. And the idea, I mean, the, 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 the fundamental thing is that most people think when they think about what pe- what people emigrated to america for their first thought is about religion and of course religion did play a role and um, there were people who went for religious reasons um, you know people know about obviously the mayflower they know they might know also about a lot of the other puritans who went during the 1630s you know who built who who left lincolnshire who left a uh, they often left a, a place called Boston on the Lincolnshire coast. And not coincidentally, they founded another place in new England, which they named Boston. Uh, you've only got to look at, you've only got to look at a map of America now to see that there are quite a lot of places that clearly, owe oh, their you know, uh, people weren't all that imaginative about their, the, the, the names that they gave to the settlements. They usually used the same name as the place they'd come from. Um, so, so, Religion clearly, you know, it did play a role, but the idea that it was dominant, that it that it was the reason that most people went, is simply not true. The, you know, there were lots of reasons why people went. People went to to because they wanted to harvest the extraordinary natural wealth in the water, the extraordinary numbers of fish, um, particularly in north in you know, North America, places like Newfoundland or um, New England, um, and you know, the waters there were. In comparison with English waters, or you know the waters in uh, uh, off Europe, which were very overfished, um, the waters off North America simply weren't, and and people couldn't believe how rich they were. Um, people went because they wanted to get rich. They went looking for it because they thought that America would be a land full of gold mines and full of precious metals and so on and so forth. Um, so they went hoping for you know, a ready crop, as it was called. They hoped to you know, go there for a short period of time, harvest enormous amounts of wealth uh, and then come home and, and live happily ever after. Um, it didn't always work out that way, but that's that's what they hoped. Um, some people were genuinely religious. Um, but people also went, for instance, during the Civil War, because they because the war had not turned out the way they hoped. So royalists often went when they lost the Civil War, and particularly after the execution of the king, which you know was to them a completely horrifying event. And um, so the idea that you know they might have chosen to stay in England, but the, the idea of staying in England and in an England which had just executed its rightful king was. Uh, you know, unthinkable. Um, and so, quite a lot of royalists did leave the country at that point, often going to places like Virginia, which were staunchly royalist in their um, inclinations, and and were until they were forced to um, to change their governor. But you know, for, the, for a limited period during the during the Commonwealth, um, people went because they wanted to be free. I mean, so people assume now that the Religious Puritans who went during the 1630s, uh, you know, were the kind of uh, archetype of what we now think of as American values. But in actual fact, you know, although these people were disagreed fundamentally with religion as it was practiced in England, they certainly weren't liberal. They, you know, a lot of people who disagreed with them found themselves, you know, rudely kind of um, tortured or expelled or hanged or, you know, they certainly in no way were they tolerant Um but having said that, some people, so someone like William Penn, for instance, who went to Pennsylvania, not surprisingly, um, genuinely did believe in in liberty of conscience. I mean, he genuinely did believe that people should be allowed to make up their own mind. He genuinely thought that it it made no sense at all for someone to, you know, state power to dictate what a person thought in a matter of private conscience. And in that respect, he, he genuinely held what we would now think of as being in you know, American values. Most of these emigrants who left during the 17th century left for none of these reasons at all. They left because they were utterly desperate. They were, you know, they were very poor. There was no hope for them in England. England was a horrible place to live in the 17th century. Um, And they were encouraged to believe that things could be better. Um, It often wasn't, but that's what they hoped.
3: You mentioned that England was a, a horrible place to live. What what sort of conditions were people living in during the 17th century?
1: So, I mean, it has, it has been said that the 17th century was the worst time in the whole of English history to be born. And the reasons for that is that population was growing. Population had grown. So during the 16th century, it was three million. It went up to four million. During the 17th century, it was at five million, then up to five and a half million. But the economy wasn't really growing, and the real things like real wages and so forth actually fell, um, and it meant that the numbers of people who were destitute, who were very poor, increased. Um, there was a trans—you know—the economy was under, was undergoing a, a significant transformation at this time. It, you know, the the days of kind of feudal labor were were moving towards um, a cash a cash economy in which lots, you know, more people were. Um, had a relationship with other people with other people which was based purely on money um it was a very uh, things like plague and so forth were still very severe um it meant that there was very little there was very little hope if you were at the bottom of the you know you were at the bottom of the pile if you were looking for work there were too many poor people looking for work and it made people very desperate and very willing to listen when people who were called spirits tried to persuade them that things could be better, you know, in in a, in a land uh, opportunity across the Atlantic.
3: And, and what was actually known about North America at this time? I mean, they, they, you mentioned that these weren't the first people to be emigrating away from England.
1: No, uh, people knew a little bit because obviously. You know, America had been discovered some time earlier, but they, but they fundamentally didn't know very much at all. And they, what they knew was confined largely to the eastern coast. They knew a little bit about South America because they'd heard about, you know, the Spanish colonies there and so forth. But in terms of what they knew about North America, they knew very little. It was referred to as being a continent that was vast and unmeasured when people first went there they hoped that well when they very first went there they hoped that actually this was asia because it was asia they were trying to get to it was places like china they realized that it wasn't um and they then began to hope that it was just a, a kind of small scattering of islands on you know which they needed to go past on route to asia um over time they realized that it that it wasn't that either it, it wasn't a small scattering of islands and people talked about what this you know this this now you know this now believed continent. they thought that they talked about a place that was as as it was put vast and unmeasured um they realized that, you know that it was larger than all of europe i mean people began to realize what was there but they they didn't really know how far from the eastern coast it extended west they they really had very little knowledge about it um they simply knew that there wasn't, you know, an easy, an easy passage to find that would take them through to Asia. So, I mean, the answer is very little. People, people really didn't know what was there, and they didn't know what to expect. I mean, an increasing number of books about about North America and so forth were written, but of course, lots of people couldn't read and, and didn't know. Um, knew very little about about the, about the place that they were going, apart from what they were told, which was a lot of the time quite untrustworthy
3: mm. i mean you mentioned these spirits or these these agents who were um sort of selling a dream to people. How are they persuading people to to emigrate
1: well they were i mean t- telling people tall tales you know as tall stories as, as their profession would have you know might have implied they were telling people that that food was, was plentiful that would the food would fall into their mouths there was a, a huge range of kind of fruits and animals to, to catch and so on and so forth. They were told that the kind of constraints of the class system uh, in England would cease to exist, that they could become planter, they could become independent, they could become wealthy. Um, and of course, for people who were at the bottom of the pile, who were really struggling to make ends meet in England, um, it, all of this to, you know, talk was was very attractive. And it wasn't true for the majority of people who went. I mean, something I think of people who went as what was known as an indentured servant, i.e. They would, they'd signed to be a slave for a limited period of time, um, usually about five years. Um, for people who went, I think a, a fewer than 10% of those people actually lived to see out their contracts. So fewer than 10% of people lived you know, to, to actually be a, a free person. Uh, um, all of the others died died prematurely. so, so clearly, you know, they were told tall stories that were for most not true. But but nevertheless, there was some hope. You know, even if it was fewer than ten percent of people who survived, there was some hope, which was not which was more than they had in England.
3: Mm. So if you were if you were an indentured um servant, does that mean that you didn't have to pay for your passage over there?
1: No, you didn't have to pay. That was precisely it. The, because because most of the people who went as indentured servants couldn't afford to they couldn't afford the passage. I mean, the passage costing the region of five pounds at the time, which was obviously a, a lot of money. And none of these people had that money. So this this device of an indenture was invented, which basically meant, it, the reason it was called an indenture was that um, a servant would sign a legal contract and the, the legal contract was then torn in half. And the two sides of the paper, as happens if you tear a piece of paper, the two sides of the paper would have teeth and that's why it was called an indenture. It's like a you know, dentist. It's, it's like, you know, so and those two halves of the paper would then be divided. A uh, Half would be given to the owner and half would be given to the, the servant. The idea being that if you ever needed to prove that this had originally been one contract, you could show that the, the two sides matched up. Um, so that was why it was called an indenture. But, the, but the, the idea was that you signed to work as a slave for a limited period of time. You signed away, you know, Everything for, for for however long it was. It was usually between four and seven years for adults. Um, I mean, some people who were teenagers or whatever signed rather longer ones than that. Um, and in return for signing that, for agreeing to work as a slave for however long it was, somebody would pay your passage and provide you with a limited amount of clothing and food and so forth. Um, so, no, these people didn't have to pay. At you know, at the, po- at the point at which they left, they didn't have to pay, and this, was, of course, was an immensely successful way of getting people on board ship because ship owners and merchants desperately wanted to find something lucrative to put into the hold on the way out. You know, they were hoping to to bring back goods or what have you, but um, they found that passengers was a very lucrative thing with which to fill their ships on the way out
3: obviously the the voyage itself would have been fraught with with danger. I mean, how long would it have taken you to to actually get to your destination?
1: Part of the problem was the uncertainty. I mean, this was a day when, you know, ships were were sailing ships, of course. Um, It meant they were very governed by the wind. Weather forecasts you know, people talk, might think they're a little bit unreliable now, but in the 17th century, they were seriously unreliable. I mean, they were useless, to be honest, um, which meant that the, the amount of time it would take on a voyage was very unpredictable. I mean, the normal things, to the extent that there was a normal, was a, for it to take about nine to ten weeks or something like that to get to North America. But it might take one month. It might take four months. Um, if, you know, if the weather was bad, it could easily take four months. Um, it certainly did do to some, it meant that things like provisioning a ship was, was an almost impossible thing to do because how on earth could you provision a ship when you had no idea how long the voyage might last. So people had very different experiences and people were immensely daunted by the idea. I mean, you know, you've only got to think of the number of people now who are a bit nervous about going on an airplane or something, um, who you know, who have what is often an irrational fear of the plane crashing or, you know, what have you. These are immensely unusual, immensely unlikely contingencies now. For people then who had probably never seen the sea before, they'd probably never been on a boat before. They almost certainly couldn't swim. The idea of going on a, a ship for a long you know, for an extended period of time, um was completely and utterly terrifying and it's it's easy to imagine why.
3: You, you've studied a lot of, sort of first-hand evidence um, for your book. Uh, you know people's actual experiences. How did people feel about making this this trip? And you know, were they excited about a new life? Were they sort of did they feel that they had to had to leave England because of you know either their religion or, or um, you know political allegiances? What was the kind of feeling when someone sort of embarked on this this journey?
1: I think, as you as you would expect, it was a mixture of. Um, the feeling that they had no choice. So for very often it was, you know, whether that lack of choice was caused by an economic desperation or whether it was caused by a sense that, um, God had deserted England, whether that be because of the religion that was practiced in England, whether that be because of the outcome of the civil wars or whatever. Um, they felt that England was not a place that they could carry on living. And they hoped that America would, you know, would be different, would be better. Um, So it was the the major thing was that for a lot of these people, there was simply no hope whatever in England. And in America, daunting as it was, scary as it was, they believed that there would be a small amount of hope, at least. Um, So it must have been a a sense of a a small sense of expectation, but also an immense feeling of fear and um, uncertainty as well, of course.
3: Mm. And what, what did they find on their arrival in the Americas?
1: Well, it, I mean, the the truth of the matter is a lot of, I mean, p- people didn't have definite ideas about where they were going to go, what they would find. It seems as though the push, the, pe- the reasons to impel them to leave England were stronger than the pull. So that it wasn't that people specifically wanted to go to New England, say. It wasn't that people specifically wanted to go to Virginia or whatever. There are cases where um, somebody tried to go to get on board a ship that was going to the Caribbean, for instance. Um, They were found by family members, taken off the ship, and they subsequently did it again, got on another ship, but this ship was going somewhere quite different. So, you know, it's quite clear that these people didn't have a specific destination in mind. It purely depended on which spirit that they happened to meet who who would persuade them to get on board a ship. Whether they ended up in Virginia or whether they ended up in Newfoundland or New England or whatever, and of course, you know what they found when they got there was enormously influenced by by where they were because conditions were very different. Um, you know, it, it could get very hot, very humid, further south. It could get extremely cold further north. Um, in terms of what they found, I mean, some of the settlements were much larger than others. If you arrived as, as an indentured servant. Probably you would kind of be spruced up a little bit as you arrived, because because if you know often what happened was it would be that a merchant or a ship owner had bought you, but they would then try and sell you on to a plantation owner as you arrived. So probably, in an effort to kind of increase the salability of the of these people on board, they were given a kind of haircut and a wash and all the rest of it. Having not been given one at all of obviously for the you know for the duration of the voyage, they would suddenly be given one. they would be sold it you know it was described as being sold like like cows or horses in in one of our markets it's it's very much as you would you know as, as of course later on, slaves were sold um in in the same kind of way they would be sold on. In, in terms of, you know, the humanity, the kindness of, of, of whoever it was that bought them, I mean, it, it, it was entirely uncertain. I mean, it, it depended hugely on who it was that happened to buy them. A matter of luck, really. But but very often, of course, things were very difficult there. And, and you know, as I say, for a small number of people, conditions were probably better. And in the long term, there was a possibility of advancement. But for many, for, you know, for a great number of people, that wasn't the case.
3: And how did the the Native Americans react to um, this this big influx of of English people coming to to sort of live you know where they've been residing for you know for for a long long time?
1: Again, there's enormous variety because you know Native Americans, you know, just as if in, in the continent of Europe or somewhere, there were a, a great number of Native American communities who were very different in in the way that they organized themselves the languages they spoke that you know their attitude to, to people arriving and so forth so from experiences i mean in the, you know in the very early days there was this this idea that these were all um unfallen you know th- this was the land of eden and these were all kind of perfect people but i mean that you know this that was replaced by a much more realistic sense that that often that you know that, that these were people who who varied in their their reactions and you know some some were more welcoming than others and people had very different experiences in somewhere like Jamestown there were major attacks major massacres in 1622 and again in 1644 um when hundreds of english settlers were you know murdered or or killed by by native american communities who Perfectly understandably, rather resented you know, this incursion by people that they hoped would, ha- that they had initially believed would would brief, briefly appear and would then disappear again, but who showed every sign of wanting to stick around. Um, but it wasn't always the case that people had an, an unfriendly welcome. I mean, someone like someone like Henry Norwood, who I wrote about in the in the piece, was immensely fortunate. You know, where he arrived, he had the you know, good fortune to, to meet a small community of Native Americans. They were Algonquins um, who were immensely welcoming. And and he, you know, he wrote about how, how friendly and welcoming they were. Um, and he was immensely grateful. And he owed this, I mean, he and all of the those with him owed their survival to the fact that they were looked after and tended and um, because they'd been, you know, on a voyage that had that had taken a long time on a on a ship that had been wrecked and so forth. Um so people yeah, people had very different experiences.
3: You you mentioned earlier that um less than ten percent of uh, of these indentured servants um lived to see out their their sort of tenure. Um what why why would this have been? Was this I mean disease presumably was a was a big factor and uh you know when when sort of moving to a, a brand new uh, you know, country.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, disease fundamentally. I mean, there was a, it was a major factor. I mean, of course, disease was very high in England. I mean, you know, life expectancy wasn't great here either. Um, and it, it, you know, the conditions. Life expectancy was much lower somewhere like in somewhere like Virginia than it was in New England. But nevertheless, you know, conditions were very bad. Uh, You know, in in all of these colonies and people talked about, you know, in New England, they talked about colonists having to bear the the kind of brunts of of their first arrival. It was, you know, they were told not to expect any of the conveniences of life that they might have, you know, experienced in England. They they weren't to expect the, you know, the apothecaries and the taverns and the and the grocers and so forth because they didn't exist. And if they wanted a house, if they wanted a house to live in, well, they'd have to build it because these, you know, there weren't houses sitting there. So, it you know, it was it was that was why, you know, in New England, it was said originally that if you were if convinced that you were divinely chosen, then by all means, you know, come over. But but if you weren't, then then you weren't yet fitted for this business. And very much the same is true in in Virginia and other places, I mean, disease was very high. There was a danger attacked by an, un, you know, unwelcoming Native American communities. There was simply a danger of starvation and and so forth. As 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 of course was the case in in England.
3: Well, I mean, it must have been a tremendous shock for for people sort of landing in these new locations um, and sort of being faced with all this. Do we have letters or you know evidence from from these people who actually who went um, about their experiences?
1: Um, We do. The the, the difficulty is that most of the evidence derives from people who are quite well-to-do. So it's not difficult to find accounts from people who were, um, you know, who became who who would, uh, the gentry class or, or higher and became or became governors and so forth it's much harder to find accounts of people who were at the bottom of the tree who were indentured servants and so forth but there are a few examples i mean there are letters there were letters written by someone called Richard Freethorn, for instance who went to virginia um during the 1620s and as an indentured servant and who wrote extremely i mean tr- tragic letters back to his parents um basically, you know, full of despair, kind of saying, why on earth have you sent me to this place? Conditions are awful. Um, The the only thing that's slightly redeemed, I mean, you know, one one almost feels glad to think that there's no, you know, the likelihood is that his parents never read them because there have been a bad outbreak of plague in in London, and the chances are that they would, they died during the plague, um, and probably never read the letters that their son had sent. But they're very kind of powerful, moving letters. In, in any case, so they do exist, but they're very hard to come by for the, for the, the poorer you know, section of the community. And the same is true for for women and so forth. It's you know there are a few, but not so many.
3: Was it just English men and women who were emigrating at this time, or um, can we see a sort of similar pattern um, elsewhere in Europe?
1: The reason why I was attracted to writing this book in the first place was because the emigration from England was so astonishing. The numbers who went from England—it was only a, quite a small country—the numbers who went were extraordinary. I mean, twice as—you know—to give you an idea, twice as many went during the 17th century from England as went from Spain. Spain was the next biggest. Um, exporter of people in Europe, a lot of Spaniards went to you know, South America and, and so forth, but twice as many went from England. And if you compare England to a country like France, which was another Atlantic power with a very long Atlantic coastline, forty times as many people went from England as went from France. I mean, forty times. It's 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 and, and France was a country with a much larger population. So it's you know it's it, it's truly astonishing, and you know it's not it's no wonder that when conflicts did appear between the English and the French, um, and obviously there were major wars, you know, in the century afterwards and so forth. But it's no one. It's no wonder that the English ultimately came out on top because the numbers of them in America were simply so much larger. Um, you know, you look at spaces on the map, and it you know it looks like French territory is, is almost as large, but the, the population of the English territories was so much larger. So, yes, the thing that's so extraordinary is the numbers who went from England Um, and it's, you you know, you uh, you try and explore why that would be and you think, well, the ratio of coastline to to landmass in England is much higher than it is in France. So, although France has a long coastline, it also has a huge amount of inland territory in England. Um, no one, it was said, was, you know, kind of further than 25 or, so, you know, n- no one was very far from the coast. Um, even if you'd never, you know, never seen the sea before, it was perfectly feasible to get to it. Another major factor, of course, was by far the largest settlement in England, London, um, is the capital city. But it's also a major port. And it's also a major port from which many of these emigrants went. Um and the fact, you know, the fact that the place which is by far the largest in England is also, a, the which is by far the largest port from which emigrants departed is a major factor, I'm sure.
3: Mm. From your research, um, did any of the stories sort of stand out for you particularly?
1: I'm just trying to think, I mean, there are a number of extraordinary stories in terms of the personalities that... Um, I was most impressed by i I would think I would pick on two uh, There was a Puritan woman called Anne Bradstreet who sailed in sixteen thirty as part of the the Winthrop fleet, as it was known, and she went with her family with her husband, with her father, with her sisters, and so forth um the thing that is truly extraordinary about her is that she became the very first poet who was in North America to be published in England. And she was the very first poet who was published of either gender, which is, you know, in 1630, 1630 is, a, is a truly extraordinary thing. I mean, there were lots of male poets, but none of them beat her to it. Her attitudes to things like gender um, to things like religions, because although she was a Puritan, she was actually very open about the fact that she'd never seen any miracles herself; that she wasn't certain; that she didn't really understand why it was that um, people should be so certain that that extreme, you know, Protestant religion was right, as opposed to you know even, God forbid, something like Catholic religion, um, which seemed you know as about as bad as, it could, as you could get for mo- for most Puritans. Her attitudes are complete and you know, reading her reading her thoughts. They sound very modern. Um, they they sound, you know, th- this idea that, you know, there was there was no reason for, for women not to be considered in the same way as men. There was no there was no certainty that the, that the religious attitudes were right. Um, she's an, she's an extraordinary person and um, I think she should be much better known than she is. Someone like William Penn is another example of someone who, so he was a Quaker who went in the second half of the 17th century, but he's another extraordinarily remarkable emigrant. He was one of the people who went because he passionately believed in the idea of liberty. He passionately believed in the idea of freedom of conscience. He he, he was on the end of a lot of persecution himself because persecution of people like him was very bad in, in Restoration England. Um, and he'd been in prison, and he'd been involved in landmark legal trials, and so forth. Um, and he he wrote that it was it, it made no sense at all to uh, to imprison people for only worshipping the god that made them, as he put it, in the in the way that they judge most acceptable. None of this made any sense. And when he established the colony of Pennsylvania, as it was known, and he was very quick to point out that it was called Pennsylvania, not after him, but after his father. Um, he was adamant that religion, you know, freedom of conscience should be should be one of the you know, should be one of the dominant um, characteristics of this place. And people people talk now about American values and American belief in in freedom and so forth. Um, and it's to, it's much more to him and, and to one or two others that that these ideas are genuinely. Um, you know, are genuinely owed not to the people who went to New England, who were, you know, as I say, Puritans or whatever. Um, so I think I'd, I'd I'd highlight those two, Anne Bradstreet and William Penn.
3: Mm, okay. Um, and when did these these numbers, these huge numbers of people emigrating, um, start to drop off?
1: Uh, they began to drop off towards the very end of the of the 17th century. I mean. As I say, a lot of people went because they were persecuted in England, and persecution got a lot better after the what was known as the Glorious Revolution, the Revolution of 1688. Um, there were other reasons, too. Things like conditions improved a little bit. The early stages of the Agricultural Revolution meant that... Um, Periods of extreme dearth declined and the, and the beginnings of, it, of the improvement in transport meant that localised um, famine declined. And uh, as well, of course, in, in the early days of the 17th century, emigration had been very consciously encouraged because the idea existed that it was not good for a country to have large pools of, of, of unemployed, you know, poor people who, you know, wandered around and, and um, it seemed to, to lots of people this was a very bad thing. In the in the course of the 17th century, particularly towards the end, you get the rise of attitudes that actually it's important for a nation economically to have these pools of, of, of poor, unemployed labor, um, that they're a good thing economically. And as a result emigration begins to be discouraged um, as opposed to encouraged um, and the, as the numbers you know do fall off quite significantly as a result. So towards the very end of the century is the answer.
2: That was James Evans. Emigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World was published earlier this month by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And you can read a piece by James on the subject of English migration to the Americas in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is available as a back issue and in several digital formats, and may well still be in the shops in countries outside the UK. Meanwhile, here in the UK our August issue has just gone on sale, containing articles on the Battle of Passchendaele, the Partition of British India, the Medieval Black Prince and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good newsagents and on the iPad, Kindle and other digital devices. And now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
4: New archaeological evidence found in Australia's Northern Territory may suggest that Aboriginal people have been in Australia for at least 65,000 years, up to 18,000 years earlier than previously thought. The rare artefacts found in a rock shelter near Kakadu National Park include the world's oldest stone axes and ochre crayons. According to a representative of the Mira people, the traditional owners of the area, the find, quote, shatters previous understandings of the sophistication of the Aboriginal toolkit. Associate Professor Chris Clarkson from the University of Queensland told the BBC that the artefacts indicate, quote, an innovative and dynamic early Aboriginal occupation of Australia, which has huge implications for everything, from the out-of-Africa story to the extinction of megafauna and Aboriginal people's own understanding of how long they've been in the country. Meanwhile, an important medieval Islamic artefact will be returned to Uzbekistan after being discovered for sale in a London gallery. The artefact, a glazed turquoise tile of half a metre in height, was reportedly stolen in 2014 from the façade of a 12th-century monument on the route of the ancient Silk Road. The tile was identified by Professor James Allen, former keeper of Eastern art at Oxford's Ashmolean Museum, who alerted the Mayfair Gallery. Allen and the proprietor of the gallery, Simon Ray, who had bought the tile in good faith, contacted the British Museum, which will now coordinate the tile's official handover to the Uzbek Embassy. Dr. St. John Simpson, a senior curator at the British Museum, told The Guardian, quote, It is one of the finest, most beautiful, largest, earliest dated glazed tile inscriptions from a religious monument in Central Asia. The Prime Minister of Uzbekistan, Abdullah Arapov, has expressed his sincere gratitude while the Uzbek government has committed to restoring the monument. In other news, the stories of more than 2,000 African Caribbean soldiers imprisoned at Portchester Castle, Hampshire, during the 18th century will be explored in a new English heritage exhibition. The prisoners were transported to England after being captured by the British in St Lucia and St Vincent in 1796 as part of the French Revolutionary War. In many cases, the soldiers had been freed from slavery by the French in 1794 and were fighting for France against the British. These were not slaves, but free men and women fighting, and in some cases dying, for a cause they believed in, explained English Heritage curator Abigail Coppins, whose years of research uncovered the identities of prisoners and many of their remarkable stories. Research is ongoing, but these names in this exhibition restores a forgotten chapter of black history to England's story. Coppins added at a time when the entire black population of Britain was roughly ten to 15,000. Our exhibition completely turns the tables of the views of this period. The exhibition is open at Portchester Castle from the 20th of July.
2: Well, that's about it for today, but do tune in again on Monday when we're going to be discussing the 19th century Anglo-American author Henry James.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.